predate the majority of the New Testament, honestly. And as I told you last week, this is a document that was, um, it was lost for several centuries. And the only reason we really knew much about this document is because the early church fathers of the 2nd and 3rd century, they quoted this document. And they would reference this document. But then, again, somewhere around the 4th, 5th century, or it was lost up until around the 18th century when it was found again. And so we have this document today. We're not studying this as Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. I have to keep making sure that I make you very aware of that. What I'm trying to do on Wednesday nights for the next few months is I'd like to go over some catechisms, and catechism is just a, a Greek word that, that basically means um, to instruct. And so catechisms were um, documents that the churches put together for the purpose of teaching their members summaries of different doctrines in the Bible. So instead of just handing you a holy Bible and saying, Here's everything we believe from Genesis to Revelation, because that is true, correct? However, it was easier to be able to help, for instance, baptismal candidates, that, and that's what they believe this document was for, was primarily baptismal candidates. They could give them this document as basically a summary statement that really helped them to see the kind of life that was expected from someone who was proclaiming that they were that the old sinful man was being buried in the death of Jesus Christ and they were rising up to walk in new life that Christ gives as they follow him. And so for someone that's making that statement, they needed to understand that there was a particular way of life for these kind of people. And wouldn't you say that we would be wise to start teaching that again today? Because today, unfortunately, what I deal with in a majority of churches, even around here, a majority of very big churches around here, I deal with this mindset that we can be a Christian and there never be any real change or any real repentance from sin. That we just live the life we want to live and we come to church and we praise God and we thank God for heaven and eternal life and nothing ever changes. And that is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Would you agree with that? And so... Like, for instance, when I was dealing with a church here um, not too many months ago, it was a church that is a, a pretty large church, and I had a situation to where some of their members were a part of a ministry that I was a part of, and they were actively living married homosexual lifestyles in the same ministry that I was dealing with, all right? And so my thought on that was I don't want to withdraw from the ministry because the ministry is a good ministry. They're doing a lot of great things. But the people that this church was putting over this ministry, they were not living, living a Christian life. Instead, they were living completely contrary to what a Christian should be living in. And so I make a phone call to the pastor of this church. Long story short, he says to me, we just believe that we need to just meet people where they are. It's not really our responsibility to talk to them about their sin and, and, and lead them away from that because my, my question to him was, don't you believe that we have a responsibility to lead people to repentance? Don't you believe we have a responsibility to teach them that this is what the Word of God 
tells us is not acceptable in a Christian's life. And we have a responsibility as the church to help each other, correct? And so his response back to me was, well, I understand what you're saying, and I'm quoting here. I understand what you're saying, but that's not what we practice here. That's a major problem. Because how can we say we're a church that are, are making disciples of Jesus Christ and there's not a change in your life? There's not a turning away from sin. I saw a, um, a, a, a post that somebody posted on Facebook. Um, it may have been earlier today. I can't remember when I saw it. This post was a post that um, it was a letter from another church. And this letter was basically, y'all come on in. It was a letter that was just basically telling this member that this member has not been in attendance in a long, long time and that they, they knew that one of the reasons they weren't was because they were actively living in a sexually immoral relationship. And apparently they, according to the letter, they had made contact to this person and they had tried to, and, and basically there was, there was no turning around, there was no repentance, and the letter was simply a statement to the member, as loving as it could be, that if you are unwilling to repent and you are unwilling to turn from this sin, then we have to part ways as far as you being a member of this church. And it was getting blasted. I'm talking about Facebook was having their day with this church. Can I tell you something? That church was right. That church was right. Now, I'm not saying they were coming at this person and they were uh, that they were um, uh, just harshly judging them and they weren't trying to lead them into reconciliation. No, just the opposite. They were loving them enough to try to lead a disciple of Jesus out of sin. Are y'all tracking with me tonight? And if we don't get back to that, to understanding that, that yes, I understand we're not saved by our works. I understand that. I understand we are saved by faith alone. But we've got to get back to that place to where we understand that faith and works are tied together at the hip. Faith without works is dead faith. Okay? And there are so many people running around the world today saying, I'm a Christian and I'm on my way to glory. And yet the life they live says otherwise. And so that's one of the things I like about catechisms and about these documents. And there are many of them out there. Uh, one of the reasons why we don't practice them today, they were always practiced in the early church. But the, one of the reasons we don't practice them today is because as Protestants that protest the Catholic faith. And the reason we protest the Catholic faith is because they had turned so far away from following what the Bible teaches to the tradition of church, to what the Pope teaches, and they were so far away from the authority of Scripture that we turned away from a lot of the things they were doing. Because one of the things they did was catechisms. But these catechisms, of course, weren't the Bible. And because we were so focused on Scripture alone, and that is important, right? That is our sole authority. But it don't mean that there aren't summary statements and things that we can look at that stay true to the Bible and the Word of God alone, but yet can help give teaching to new members, can help give direction, and can help show them a little bit of areas of what we're looking at. So this is an interesting document to me. That's the reason why we're going through it. We're not teaching it as Holy Scripture. 
but it is an interesting document. And so it's called the Didache, and the Didache is just a Greek word that means the teaching. And then the catechism would be the instruction or what you're actually teaching. And so this is, they say, the teaching of the 12 apostles to the nations or to the Gentiles, if you will. And we're actually in chapter 2. I told you I wasn't going to go back and keep recapping. So unfortunately, if you haven't been here, you'll have to go back and look over chapter 1 yourself. But one of the things you'll notice is that chapter 1 is really a repeat of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when you look at that. Um, And so you'll be able to see that. But in chapter 2, it says the second commandment, and we're talking about grave sin that is forbidden. Now, he started off in the first part by telling us that we have um, two basic commands that we are to follow as Christians. Anybody remember what those two commandments are? That's right. Same thing Jesus taught whenever the the Pharisee asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Well, the first is love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so here we have this teaching of basically the golden rule of loving God and then showing that same kind of love toward others. And that's what we have in the first part of it is they teach in chapter 1 what that looks like. That's the first part of it. Now notice in chapter 2 he says the second commandment of the teaching, and the teaching he's talking about, again when you go back and read chapter 1, the teaching is how we love God with all our heart and how we love our neighbor as ourselves. So here's the second part of it, and basically what he gets into here is the moral law of God. What you're going to hear in this is much like the Ten Commandments. But I want you to understand something. He's not telling us to go back and follow the law in order to be saved. What he's teaching us in this document is that even though Jesus has fulfilled much of the symbolic law, for instance, we don't um, keep the Sabbath day holy the way that the the way that the Old Testament Jews did, because Jesus has fulfilled and He is our Sabbath rest, and we celebrate our Sabbath rest rest on Sunday on his resurrection day, um, we don't celebrate the Passover anymore because Jesus is our Passover and he has fulfilled that. We don't do the Feast of Unleavened Bread anymore because Jesus is our... Let me give you an example of that. Look with me in your Bible at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at a couple of scriptures. I'm not going to look at all these because we could spend all night looking at how Jesus fulfilled the symbolic part of the law as well as he fulfilled the moral part of the law as well. But now he leads us in following him in the moral part of the law. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'll look at verse 7, notice what the Apostle Paul says here to us. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. Anybody know what, what is leaven? Rising. So you put leaven in dough, right, or in flour, and as you mix that up, that leaven causes it to rise up and become puffed up over time, right? And so we liken that physical example to a spiritual example of having sin and things in our life, and that sin is considered to be like leaven that causes us to puff up. It causes us to rise in our life. 
and a Christian is supposed to be doing the exact opposite, correct? We're not supposed to be puffing up and rising in ourselves, but instead we're supposed to be humbling ourselves. And we are, what did, the, what did John the Baptist say? He said, I must decrease and he must what? That is the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian is not me, 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 me. The heart of a Christian is he, 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 he. I must decrease. I must turn away from my sin. I must remove the leaven. And so here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking to them about cleansing out the old leaven or the sin that as a church you may be a new lump, a new body. And then notice what he says next. As you really are unleavened. Well, how are we unleavened, Paul? Because I've still got sin in my life. Do you have sin in your life? So how are we unleavened, Paul? Well, look what he says next. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then look at verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here again is just one example of an Old Testament feast that they took part of, which was the Passover and the unleavened bread. And it was where during the Passover they had to get rid, they had to sweep the house completely to make sure there was no leaven in the house. All right? And this was a tradition that they did to celebrate what Jesus was going to do when the blood was applied to our life. And you remember what God said about the, um, the blood on the doorpost? He said, you slaughter a lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost, and when I what? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And ultimately, that was a feast that they had to keep year after year after year. Why don't we still do that according to the Jewish law today? Because Jesus is our Passover. He is our Passover sacrifice. He has fulfilled that symbolic part of the law. This is the reason why we don't worship on Saturday and we don't believe as the Seventh-day Adventists do that those that don't worship on Saturday are hell-bound. Now that's the truth. And so we don't, we don't serve God according to following laws so that we can earn our salvation. No, Jesus is our salvation. And now we follow Him in faith. And we produce good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them as we're created new in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. And so he says here, um, look at one more scripture and then I'll, I'll start going through the doctrine. Colossians chapter 2. I do this all the time. I get so caught up. I won't, get, I won't even get through the doctrine. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse um, 16. Colossians 2 verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath because these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the point being is that 
The New Testament teaches us that there, the symbolic part of the law that, that was a shadow of things to come, that pointed toward what Jesus was going to do for us, those things are fulfilled and we don't necessarily partake of those things anymore because we look back and celebrate it in Jesus. Every Sunday when we get together, we celebrate the Sabbath because it pointed toward the rest that Jesus was going to give us. Every time we look back at the Passover, we look at Jesus and we say, that's what he did for us, and we celebrate it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We don't follow dietary laws of food and drink because all of those things pointed to the cleanliness that Christ was going to bring when we had him in our lives. And so we don't follow the law in order to be saved. However, the moral part of the law is still for us to keep. So even though Christ fulfilled all righteousness, does that mean that I can now just be a murderer? Because Jesus is the one that kept the law that said, Thou shalt not murder, so I don't have to do that anymore. No, that moral obligation is still ours as disciples of Jesus, correct? And so that's what we're looking at here in chapter 2. So go back to the document, and we're looking at the second commandment of the teaching, and this is how we are going to love God with all our heart, and this is how we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. And here's how it is. You shall not commit murder. Wouldn't you say that if you abstain from committing murder, that that would be a good way to love your neighbor? Be a good way to love God too, right? And so again, he's just going over the moral part of the law here, that just because we're saved, just because we're Christians, just because Jesus fulfilled the symbolic part of the law, that don't mean that we don't still have an obligation to not be murderers. All right, and then look what he says next. You shall not commit adultery. That's another thing. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, then we don't commit adultery on each other. Is, is that, if I commit adultery on my wife, is that me loving her as myself? Not at all. I do not fulfill it. So this command is for married people, that we don't commit adultery on each other. Then he says, you shall not commit pederasty. And basically this was the same thing as pedophilia, which was very common in Greece at this time. And he says for a Christian, a Christian does not have these kind of sexual relationships because this is not God-honoring, this is sinful, and for somebody that is dying to sin and is rising up to walk in follow, and follow Christ, this is not a lifestyle that should be in anyone claiming to be a Christian, right? And this is one I think we all can agree on pretty easily, right? But notice it says next, you shall not commit fornication. Now this is a Greek word that comes from, uh, basically it's where we get our word porn. When you go back and look up this word, it's a word that means pornea. It, 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 it encompasses all sexual immorality. So in other words, a Christian is somebody who is honoring the marriage, honoring the marriage bed. And they are someone who is trying to make sure that they are loving their spouse the way that they would love themselves and the way that God loves them. And so as a result of that, we're not a sexually immoral person, whether we're a married person, whether we're a single person, no matter what the case may be, a Christian is called to a lifestyle of sexual purity. We don't teach that much in our culture today either, do we? 
In our culture today, we're just fine because it's common for, and, and I'm not trying to judge anybody harshly. I was this way as a young adult. I was sexually immoral. And yet, just because the culture today has become so accepting of it, does that mean that we as a church should become more accepting of it? No. We still have a responsibility to teach born-again young Christian believers, single Christian believers, that you are called to sexual purity. Even though the world we live in has become accepting of any type of sexuality, right? But, but just because the world's standard changes doesn't mean that God's standard changes. The Bible teaches us that God is the same yesterday, today, and what, he changes tomorrow? So God's standard still remains the same. And it's important as, as parents, as grandparents, as uh, adults in the church, it's important that we remember that so that we can love people enough to try to direct them the right way, to teach them the right way. Then he says next, um, you shall not steal. Again, these are things that would keep you from loving your neighbor as yourself. If you're stealing from somebody, you're not loving the Lord your God, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, and therefore you are not following the Lord Jesus Christ in your discipleship. He says next, you shall not practice magic. And I taught you last week that this comes from places like in Acts chapter 8 where Simon the magician was going around and deceiving people. And you remember the Bible actually tells us that Philip preached to him and he got saved. I'm putting air quotes here because we find out later that he wasn't really saved. But he followed Philip for a little while and then whenever he saw Philip lay hands on people and the Holy Spirit fell on them and he saw the works that the apostles were doing, he said, how much money can I give you so that I can have this power? Go back and read it, Acts chapter 8. And Philip looked back at him and said, you and your money both be cursed. He said, you have neither no part in the things of God. In other words, your heart is just revealed that you are still in bondage to sin and that you do not love and want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you and your money will perish together. And then Simon asked him at the end, he said, please pray for me that what you said won't happen. But he also knew it was true. He knew that if his heart didn't change, he was going to be eternally damned because he had not been born again. He was still a lover of sin and a hater of the things of God. So this is the kind of magic he's talking about. It attempts to manipulate for personal gain. And again, this is the same word. When you read it in Acts chapter 8, go back and read it. You'll see that this is what it's talking about. It's talking about do not be the kind of person that tries to manipulate others uh, by deceiving them for personal gain because that's what a magician actually does. Now, some of them do it as entertainment. And, you know, I guess uh, that would be just fine if everybody that comes knows this is just entertainment and, um, and then maybe that, that's absolutely fine. But when you got people that are genuinely trying to deceive others into thinking that they are, and go back and read Acts chapter 8, someone special with some kind of power, you lead this person into sin, and you yourself are sinning and not loving others the way that God loves you. 
And so next he says, you shall not practice witchcraft. And here we're talking about mediums and necromancers. And so we're talking about people that seek fortune tellers and seek uh, tarot cards and people that are trying to uh, communicate with the dead. And he's saying that this also is not the path of a Christian. And we're going to find out why as we go further into the next chapter. Chapter 3 tells us why because of what it leads to. But we'll get there here in a minute. But next he says, you shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill that which is born. And again, this was a common practice back in ancient Greece. And so this is pretty special to me to be able to see that documents that were written before much of the New Testament actually plainly came out and said that abortion is wrong. And they didn't just stop at abortion, but even a child that has just exited the womb, it is still a life that God created. And he considers this loving others and doing unto them as you would have others do unto you. Would you have others rip you from your mother's womb? Would you have others murder you when you are um, two months old or whatever the case may be in this particular scenario? No. And so here we see very plainly that a Christian that supports abortion, no. The two conflict. They don't go in hand. It's like a Christian that supports pedophilia. Does that make sense? Not at all. Not at all. And so he says here that as far as a baptismal candidate, you need to understand that the kind of life that you're being called to is a life that loves the sanctity of life and you protect the sanctity of life. Next he says, you shall not covet the things of your neighbor. So you shouldn't have this uh, desirous heart for the things of, of what everybody else has. All things come from God. And so if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're not wanting the things that they have, but instead we want to thank God for the way that he's blessed us. It's that simple. And then the things that I have, I want to share with you because they're not things that, that are mine at the, at the end of the day anyway. I'm only a steward of the things that God has given me. And I hear people say, well, I worked hard for what I've got. Yeah, where'd you get the breath to do, do it from? Where'd you get the strength to do it from? Where'd you get the eyesight? Where did you get the job? Where did you get everything you have comes from the Lord. And so at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to be of generous heart and also not one that seeks the things of others, but to be content with the things that God has blessed us with. So you shall not covet the things of your neighbor. You shall not falsely swear or you shall not bear false witness. And these are things like, again, lying against your against your fellow brother or sister and bearing false witness against them, telling a lie for testimony to someone in this. He said, this is not the kind of lifestyle that a Christian lives, all right? And so we're not liars. We're people that speak the truth. That's who we are because God is truth. Then he says next, you shall not speak evil. You shall not bear no grudge. And again, we're going to get a little bit deeper into this here in a minute so that we see what he's talking about and why he says these things. But if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're not going to be speaking evil against them. If we're going to love our neighbor as our as ourselves, we're not going to be bearing grudges against them, but we're going to try to have compassionate heart, hearts that want to seek reconciliation as much as possible. You shall not be double-minded. And here we're talking about somebody, James called this person a doubter. Double-minded is somebody that you 
know what the Word of God says, and you know what the truth is, but back here you're thinking, yeah, but I just don't really know. I don't know if God will really do what he says he will do. Don't be a double-minded person. Be a person that trusts the Lord. And then he says, don't be a double-tongued person. Double-tongued means to say one thing over here and then say one thing over here. In other words, you're the kind of person that you will say anything that, that you have to say in order to get approval wherever you are. And that's not the kind of person that is following the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is not double-minded, and the Lord Jesus Christ is not double-tongued. And we, following him, are called to live the kind of life like he did. For to be double-tongued is a snare of death. And, and again, we'll look at what that means here at the next chapter. Your speech shall not be false nor empty, but fulfilled by deeds. So again, here we got this double-tongued thing that's continued here. Somebody that's double-tongued is speaking false in some places. Somebody that's double-tongued is speaking empty over here. Maybe not over here, but over here. And then somebody that is double-tongued is not fulfilling what they say by deeds. So we're the kind of people that we do what we say we're going to do. This is important. We, we need to be the kind of people that the church can get back to a place that you and I can give each other our word and shake hands. And that's, your word is what? Your what? Your bond. Your word is your bond. That's the kind of people that we are should be coming back to. And as we're following Christ, we're called to a life that we speak truth to one another. We don't lie to one another. We speak truth. And our word is our bond. And then he says next, you shall not be covetous nor uh, rap rapacious. And I, that, I looked that word up. I'm not sure if I pronounced it right, but it means not greedy. It means that your heart is not set on the things of this world and more of and, and more stuff. So you're, you're, you're not loving your neighbor and you're not loving the Lord your God with all yourself if you're in love with the things of this world. That's just the truth of it. And so our focus and our mind should not just be on give me, give me, give me. I want more, more, more. Our job should be, our focus should be more on I want more of him. I want to be more obedient to him. I want to follow him more. I want to be more like him. This is the heart of a Christian. And when you see someone calling the name of Christ, but this is not the path that they're walking, can I just be honest with you? the early church would have held them responsible and said, you can't keep doing this. And they would have, according to the words of Jesus, they would have went to them out of love and genuineness. And if it were Bob, for instance, and I would have come to Bob and I would have said, Bob, brother, I know, I know you named the name of Christ and, and I, I know that you're a believer, but this in your life right now does not reflect a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's my heart that, that he can see that and the Holy Spirit has already convicted him of that. How many of you know if the Holy Spirit's in your heart and you're living in sin, what's that do to you? I don't know what it does to you, but I tell you what it does to me. I'm telling you, I am in a bad place mentally when I have sin, unconfessed sin in my life. The Holy Spirit is wearing me out. And so hopefully... When a church member is in sin and we come to that person, the hope is that they say, you're exactly right. I, I don't know how I let myself get to this place. I, I, I know this is not where I'm supposed to be. I, 
I, I, I repent. I want to do whatever I've got to do to make this thing right. And hopefully that's where it goes, right? And if it goes there, guess what? You've gained your brother is what Jesus said. But if it don't go there, does that mean that it's my responsibility to just stop and say, well, Bob's just going to be Bob? <laughs> no. My responsibility according to Jesus and the way he taught the church is that I come and get two or three witnesses with me that know Bob and know the situation and know everything that's going on and we can sit down again and we can say, Bob, listen, brother, please, this is not the way that a Christian can continue in because let me tell you what will happen. If Bob says he's a Christian and he continues and continues and he continues and he continues practicing a lifestyle of unrighteousness, you know what Bob will actually prove about his faith? That he didn't have faith. That he actually didn't follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a responsibility to keep coming back to make sure that, that Bob is examining himself. You don't mind me using you as an example, do you? Y'all do know I'm, I'm talking hypothetical here, right? <clears throat> but still, the, the point is, is that it's our heart that our fellow church member that they turn from this sin and that they continue being a disciple of Jesus Christ because at the end of the day, I'm not as much worried about Bob and his sin as I am his eternal life because he's proving that he may not actually have the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. And so if that don't work, does that mean we've done everything we can do? No, according to the Word of God, he would tell us again that if you really love that brother, that you ought to go back to him with the entire church and you bring this thing before the church so that not just two or three witnesses can express their, their understanding that Bob needs to repent, but that the entire church can come together and be able to say, Brother, please, please see the error of your ways. And then if he will not see it, the very last step is what? We don't like to talk about this today, but I'm telling you, do you want to follow the Bible or do you want to just be like the world? And so our responsibility would literally be to finally come to Bob as a church and be able to say, Bob, I'm, I'm sorry, brother, but you are proving over and over again that you are not a disciple of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are not walking in the faith. And so we have no choice but to part ways with you. And the Bible actually tells them that at that point, you treat them as if they were a tax collector or a Gentile. What does that mean? They are unbelievers. They are in the world. And again, the hope in that is still, we're not punishing them. The hope in that is still that one day he sees the disapproval of an entire body of believers following Jesus Christ in the hope that one day he finally comes back and he says, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. I was living in sin. I knew I was in sin. I knew this was not right. Just think about it. If we actually did that as a church, now granted, in our culture today, you just get up and move on down to the next church, right? So unfortunately, we have things working against us today. But does that uh, free us from our responsibility of following that course of action to love each other enough to do that? 
I don't think we're done. I think what we have to do is still do the best that we can to love people enough so that they understand that you cannot be a disciple of Christ and continue the rest of your life in sin. I'm not saying you don't have sin in your life. I am saying that a Christian following Jesus is at war with their sin. And they do not want to be walking in sin. They want to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. That's the reason why y'all hear me preaching this so much. I don't preach this easy believism. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. No, the demons believe. <laughs> Are they saved? No. They, they believe so much that they tremble at the name of Jesus and at the word of God, yet they're not saved. What it means to be saved is to be born again. It means to have a heart and eyes that God has opened up and you see what sin is and what it has done to you in the world and you see the end of it. And in you is a desire to want to follow the things of the Lord. Go back and read Acts chapter 8. You want to question me on some of that, that's a good story. That's a good example. Because this Simon the magician, he got saved. He believed. But then go down and see the way that Philip responds to him at the end. He finds out real quick that, brother, you were never born again. Same thing that, God, that Jesus told Nicodemus. You remember that? Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, uh, we know Nicodemus said this, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do the works you do unless God is with him. Is that enough for him to be saved though? Is it enough to believe that Jesus is a good teacher and that God is with him? Is that enough? No. What did Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, I tell you, you must be born again. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you will not see kingdom of heaven. He said, let me give you an example. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it come from. You don't know where it went. But what do you know about the wind? It was there. That's the example Jesus gave. He said, the same way is those that are born of the Spirit. The same exact way. You don't know where it come from. You don't know where it went. But one thing you know, there's something different. There is something different. I am a changed person. I have a new heart. I have a new mind. And that is so important that we continue to teach that, to, to, to keep teaching that again today. Now again, it, what's, so, what's so tough for us is that just like Philip, go back here with me. God forgive me if I need forgiveness. Acts chapter 8. Do I even have time? I got time. Acts chapter 8. I think it's 8. Hold on. Let me make sure I'm telling you right. Yes, Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 9. Now Philip has been going around Samaria and he's been preaching the gospel everywhere he goes. Look what happens here at Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city 
and amaze the people of Samaria. And here's what they said about him. That he himself was somebody great. Do you see what he's doing with this magic? He's trying to deceive others into believing that he is somebody powerful, that he is somebody great. And he's done a pretty good job of it, all right? Look what he says next in verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So he's a great deceiver, right? And here's what they said about him. This man is the power of God that is called great. So you see what this magic caused it led to? This magic led to idolatry. This magic led to worshiping something other than the great power of God himself. And so in verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after what? Being baptized, he continued with Philip. So as far as Philip knew, I'm not. this is what makes it difficult for us. I have to be very careful. It's not my job to decide up front whether or not you have been born again. My job is to preach the gospel. And for those that respond to the gospel, I believe my job is to teach and to baptize them. I I truly do. And Jesus himself said that the wheat and the tares are going to grow together, right? And so we're going to have both. So this is following with Philip, and look what he says next. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, Simon was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. What is the Holy Spirit again? The gift of God. The gift of God to all who believe. Look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in the matter. For why? Your heart is not right before God. So in other words, Peter sees something in Simon that he sees that this is not evidence of a born-again believer, right? And he looks, and even though he's been baptized, even though he's been following Philip, he looks and he says there's a problem, but Peter don't stop there. Look where he goes next in verse 22. What's he calling to do? So there you go. Turn around, Simon, because if you continue in this, because remember, this is the very thing that Simon was in to begin with, right? He wanted the power so that people would be amazed at him. His heart has not changed. Do y'all see that? He has believed and he has, but the reason he believed was not to be forgiven for his sin and to be right with God Almighty. The reason he believed because he saw the power of God in him. And so he says to him, 
if you don't repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see, look what Peter says here, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So in other words, here's what Peter's saying. I still see that you are sick with bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The thing about a Christian is that they are no longer in the bond of iniquity, for the truth has set them free. They are fighting with their sin, they are at war with their sin, but they have a desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Peter is able to look at Simon, and he's able to see that there is evidence in his life to say that you may not be born again. The same thing I was trying to say a minute ago. As believers in Christ, our responsibility is to love each other enough that when we see things in their life that is not consistent with a disciple of Jesus Christ, we should love them enough to do the very same thing that Peter did right here and be able to look at them and say, repent. Because if you don't turn away from this thing, and if you don't get if you don't get in the war with your sin and you continue in this same old heart that you've always had, you're going to perish. And that's what he told him. And then look what Simon says at the end of it. Verse 24. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. At the end of the day, if God Almighty does not open his eyes, if God Almighty does not give him a spirit birth, how does that happen? The Bible says faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. And when we hear this word and God opens our eyes to our sin, let me show you another example of it. Um, Acts chapter 16. chapter 16 verse um, look at verse 14 one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God notice what happens next the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. Did y'all catch that part? What separated Lydia from all the other people on the riverside there? Because Paul went to a riverside where the Jews came to meet. If there wasn't a synagogue in the town where they were at. Uh, most Jewish women are people that wanted to hear the word of God. They came to a riverside somewhere, and this would be the meeting place. And so when Paul came into, um, where is he at here? Philippi. When Paul comes into Philippi, there is no synagogue. So instead of going to the synagogue where he always went, 
he goes to the next gathering place of Jewish people, which is by the riverside. And when he does this, he preaches the gospel. What was the difference between Lydia and everybody else that was there, according to that scripture? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. The born again experience, let me say that, can only happen if the Holy Spirit himself does a work in your heart and in your eyes. It will not come by you just believing in the name of Jesus. Now again, our job, we don't know who the Holy Spirit's going to open their eyes. I don't know if your eyes are open and you don't know if mine are. That's the truth. But our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to hold each other accountable so that as we are believing and following Christ that when we see something in our life that is not practicing righteousness that we're able to stop each other and we're able to help love each other enough to direct each other and that's something that we don't do as a church today amen and it's sad and you know why because if we did do it in the church today, your church, is, is it going to get bigger? Well, probably not. You hope so, because people are. But again, more than likely, how many of you like to be held accountable for your sin? But how many of you need to be held accountable for your sin? And so... This is something that, again, that we've got to get back to the church is understanding that there is a way of life that you and I have been called to and that as born-again believers, we will live this way of life. Again, it don't mean we won't have sin, but go back and read 1 John. You're not going to be one that practices unrighteousness. You're going to be one that practices righteousness and then you're at war with your sin. All right? Again, does that mean that a born-again believer can't fall into areas of their life where they're practicing unrighteousness? No, because they can. They can fall into those areas of their life. Look at David, look at Moses, look at... But the difference is this. When Nathan called David to give an account, what did David do? He repented. He hit his knees. Go back and read Psalm 51. He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. I have sinned between you and I. I have sinned. And so that's the heart of a born-again believer. Look, at, look with me at one more verse. John chapter 3. Look at verse, uh, starting in verse, um, starting in verse 18. Remember, he's already gave the lesson on being born again. So here he's talking about believers that have actually been born again. Look what he says in verse 18 of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. So here's the judgment that comes. The light has come into the world. Who was the light that came into the world? All right. So we saw what it looked like to live in righteousness, right? Light came into the world, but what happened? 
rather than the light. And how do we know that they love the darkness rather than the light? According to the end of that verse. So again, if a born-again believer has truly been born again, if a believer in the name of Jesus Christ has this new heart and their eyes have been opened and the Lord has opened their heart, there is going to be a love in them for the light. And they are not condemned. But if they are condemned, it's because light came into the world and they loved the darkness more than the light. And the way we knew that is because their deeds were evil. And look what he says next in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. A sinner who is a believer and they are confronted with their sin, there is going to be a desire in them to repent from this sin and to let that be exposed so that they can be reconciled to where they are supposed to be. And so he says in verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you all see that? Sorry, I got plumb away from the doctrine. But I think it's so important, and I wish I wish the church was packed tonight to hear this because more of us need to hear this. But I think it's so important. <coughs> excuse me. I think it's so important for us to understand that there is so much more to being a Christian than just believing in Jesus and being baptized and even following a good preacher, just like Simon was doing with Philip, right? There is so much more to it. We, well, I try, I try, yeah, yeah, I try. But, I mean, do, do you see what I'm talking about? I'm not, I'm not just making this up. This, this is biblical, what we're talking about. And so it's important that, as we study these documents and as we go through these catechisms, that we come to a place that we understand that we are called as a Christian to a certain way of life, a life that loves God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and a life that loves our neighbor as ourselves. And then the teaching that we get from these are the things that show us things that we should avoid, things that we should practice so that we are living this out. Not so that we can be saved by our works, but that so our faith in the light can be demonstrated by the life that we live. And if we will help each other to do that, then we can all, as Peter said, make our call and our election sure. Sure. And if we, if, if we can't do that, then as a church, I think we are failing miserably. Miserably. I don't care how good your singing is. I don't care how good your preaching is. If we can't get down to the heart of really loving each other enough to help guide each other in the right way, as, as hard as it may be at times, I believe that we're failing miserably. And so I hope that as we study this document and we get back into it next week, um, Lord willing, as we get back into it, I hope that you see that that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the lifestyle of a born again.
at someone that is supposedly going to be baptized and get involved in the church. This is the kind of life that should be evident in their life. And then when we get into the next chapter next week, chapter 3, we're going to see why. Notice um, just very quickly so you can study ahead of time if you want to. But notice in chapter 3 down here, he, he speaks so tenderly to him. He says, my child, I love that, my child, flee from every evil thing and from every likeness of it. Be not prone to anger, for anger does what? Leads to murder. Be neither jealous nor quarrelsome nor of hot temper, for out of all these things murders are engendered. So in other words, he starts getting into here's why you should avoid these type of emotions and these type of sins because it could lead you as a Christian to do things like David did with Bathsheba. Or it could lead you to do things like Moses did in Egypt. Or it could lead you to do things like Noah did when he got off the ark or so on and so on. So it's important that as a Christian we understand we're not doing these things to be saved. We're doing these things because this is how we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are born again, this will be the lifestyle that we have. That's a tough teaching, ain't it? It's tough. But I believe that it is one that is needed and I believe it's one that's biblical. Any questions? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we preach this gospel today to where there is no, there is nothing you have to do. Don't, don't, don't do anything. Just, just believe. Pray this prayer. And again, I'm not against praying prayers with people. I'm not. I believe wholeheartedly that a born-again person can come down here and we can help them pray a prayer to express their heart to God. But if you think for one second that what saved you is that you came to an altar one time, got on your knees and said a prayer, no, wrong. If you don't see a changed heart and a changed life, you have every reason to do what Paul told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think it's first, no, Second Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith at all. Do you not know that the Lord Jesus Christ is in you? Because he looked at their lives and he saw that y'all were so full of sin. He said, y'all need to examine yourself to make sure that you're not actually tares in the midst of the wheat. And that's a good thing for us to do from time to time, right? And how are we going to examine ourselves? We ought to be able to see the life we're living. And if it don't line up, then there ought to be a desire in us to repent and turn around and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions? Did I confuse anybody with that? Okay. Thank you all so much for your time and your attention. I hope you don't get bored with me. Um, I'm trying my best to stay to my plan, but sometimes it just gets off track a little bit. But um, I hope you're learning something no matter what. That's the most important thing. All right. If there's nothing else, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer tonight, and um, you'll be dismissed. The Lord willing, we'll see you Sunday. Be filled with us. Lord, so glory. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord, we are able to examine ourselves and see whether or not we are in the faith. Father, I thank you, Lord, that, Lord, whenever... I'm not walking the, the right path, Father, that you convict me, that you prick my heart, Father, Lord, that you make me miserable. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would do that for each and every one of us, Father, Lord. I just pray, God, that we would always 
Um, Lord, I pray that we would not quench your spirit so much that we can't even hear you anymore. Father, I pray that we would never be guilty of grieving your Holy Spirit as you tell us to, to not do. Father, I pray that we would, Lord, if we'd be guilty of anything, it would be that we're drunk with the Spirit. We're filled with it. And Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to always be having a desire to walk in you, to have a, have a heart that repents daily. Father, for, for everything that is not pleasing to you, Father, Lord, I pray that we're always actively pursuing you in our life and we're actively putting the things off that don't belong to us. And Father, again, I know that it's only by faith that we're saved. But Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you've given me through faith a new heart and a new mind. And Father, I thank you for the desire that you've put in me to put on your nature, to be like you. Father, I pray, God, that, um, Lord, as we go through this uh, document of teaching, Father, of how a born-again believer should live, Father, I pray that we would see it just as that, as works of our faith. And Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to examine ourselves through this. And if there are areas in our life that we see that we are not being obedient to you and not following you in some way, Father, I pray, God, that, Lord, you would grant us repentance and that we would turn from it. And, Father, that our, our lives would be right with you, Father. Lord, I pray that this document is a way for us to examine our faith, to be able to make sure that we see the evidence of you working in our lives. And Father, I thank you for your patience. I thank you that you are long-suffering. Father, I thank you that you're gentle, that you're kind. And Father, I just pray, God, that you keep working with us. Lord, I know that if you started the work in us, you will bring it to completion. And Father, I look forward to that day. God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask you for these things in Jesus' name.